0: Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly Economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms/publicsectorfuture to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agarwal, Farm Policies Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We often discuss competition between the United States and China on FP Live, and rightly so, it drives so much of geopolitics. But one issue that often comes up in US China discussions is Taiwan, and the problem there is that we mostly have that conversation without hearing enough from the Taiwanese people themselves. Now, Taiwan has been governed independently of China since 1949. Beijing views the island as part of its territory, and it has vowed to, quote, unify Taiwan with the mainland. Taiwan has lived under the shadow of this threat for decades. But as China has expanded its military and its economy, this threat has grown and grown. There are many analogies between a potential invasion of Taiwan and Russia's actual invasion of Ukraine, and that is why Taiwan has been watching events in Europe very closely. One thing that makes Taiwan even more important economically than it already is, is its complete domination of the market for high-end chips. Taiwan is responsible for more than 90% of the best semiconductors. So a blockade of Taiwan would have immense ripple effects for the global economy. So how is Taipei thinking about its security? What does it need from the world? And how does the world view a potential invasion from China? I spoke with Joseph Wu this week. He is the country's foreign minister. As always, subscribe to FP to watch these discussions live and on video and to ask questions. There's a big discount going on our site. Just use the code FPLIVE when you check out. Let's dive in. Minister Wu, welcome to FP Live. Well, thank you
1: very much, Ravi, for this interview.
0: It's our pleasure. So the G20 concluded last weekend. Analysts expected the group would fail to produce a joint statement because of disagreements over the war in Ukraine, but they did produce a statement, and it barely mentioned the war in Ukraine, and it completely avoided mentioning Russian aggression. Sitting in Taipei, when you heard the news about the joint statement, how did you react?
1: Uh, We were a little bit disappointed because the war in Ukraine uh, is something that we should pay attention to. The Taiwanese people are paying a lot of attention to the war in Ukraine because we think that uh, it is not right for any country at all to launch a war against another democracy. And that war is not just. And the kinds of atrocities and destructions is something that's not supposed to happen. And the Taiwanese are looking at the war and thinking that if that is the case, maybe China will have the same intention to launch a war against Taiwan. And the result will be similar to what the Ukrainians are suffering. And therefore, from the Taiwanese perspective, we want to help the Ukrainians. And we want to stop the war from happening. uh, And we want to stop the war in Ukraine. And if the international community or international organizations are not able to stop the war in Ukraine, I think the Chinese might be tempted to do similar things against Taiwan or against other countries in this region.
0: You know, so I brought up this question, of course, given some of the parallels between Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. When you look at the war in Taiwan, what lessons are you learning um, for your country?
1: Indeed, we are paying a lot of attention to the war in Ukraine, and we'll try to draw lessons from the war in Ukraine as opposed to the original expectation that Russia will be able to take over Ukraine very quickly. Uh, The Ukrainians were fighting very bravely, uh, keeping the Russian troops at bay. And uh, uh, they use asymmetric warfare uh, to keep uh, one of the largest military uh, in its uh, defense. And also, there's a lot of international support for the Ukrainians. And these are all the lessons that Taiwan has been learning from the war in Ukraine. The first, is the determination to defend one's own country. And we see that the Ukrainians are terribly determined to defend their own freedom and their sovereignty. And this is what we want to learn from. And uh, the regular people here in Taiwan, or the Taiwanese government are more determined than ever. And we are getting uh, better prepared and we are trying to train our soldier more. And when our soldier or our regular people are more prepared they are even more determined because they know they are well-trained to deal with the situation. And the second is uh, asymmetric warfare. Uh, If you look at what's going on in Ukraine, uh, asymmetric warfare is rather effective. And we are conducting our military reform right now, and we are going into the asymmetric uh, warfare uh, preparation. And I think this kind of preparation is rather going very effectively. And we know that uh, this is the best way to deal with the Chinese invasion. And other than that, uh, I think we should all uh, be uh, very well prepared uh, If knowing that China has an intention to invade Taiwan. And if China knows that Taiwan is prepared or the international community is prepared and China is going to suffer a tremendous loss in its aggression against Taiwan, that will be a very strong deterrence force against the Chinese attempt of using force against Taiwan. And the third lesson, is the international support. Uh, after the war broke out uh, in Ukraine or after the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, we saw that uh, major democracies throughout the world uh, came to support the Ukrainians, uh, including Taiwan. You know, originally, we did not have uh, too much political relations or e- even economic relations with Ukraine, but the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese government uh, uh, you know, try to uh, provide a lot of support, uh, humanitarian support for the Ukrainians as well. And I think these kinds of uh, international support is keeping the Ukrainians knowing that they are not alone in dealing with the Russian invasion. They have the international community backing them up. So the international support is something that uh, Taiwan should also look out for. And we have been working very hard during this period of time to uh, work more with uh, the key country, of course, the United States. And we are also improving our relations with uh, countries like the UK, Canada, uh, Australia, Japan, and et cetera. And we know that uh, the democracies now are more supportive of Taiwan than ever. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, major gatherings of the international community like G7 or EU summit and et cetera, There's always a mentioning of Taiwan, like peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait is very important, or opposition to unilateral change of status quo, or the peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait is an uh, integral part of the global security and prosperity. And I think Mm -hmm. all these kinds of mentioning, uh, showing support to Taiwan on the one hand, and saying no to the Chinese military coercion or threat against Taiwan. So all these are being learned by the Taiwanese people. And we are want to continue all this trend of catching the international support and train ourselves better for the situation in the future, impossible Chinese aggression against Taiwan.
0: So I think you've very eloquently laid out the lessons to learn from what Ukraine has done well. Um, are there any lessons to learn um, from mistakes that Kiev might have made over the last couple of
1: years? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, we are looking at uh, historical sequences. Uh, what happened in Europe? Uh, if you look at uh, the, uh, the case of Georgia in 2009, and the case of Crimea in 2014, we weren't able to stop the Russians. And I think the Russians were important to uh, go further. And that's what happened last February uh, over the war in Ukraine. And if we were able to stop the Russians at Crimea or Georgia, I don't think that the the war in Ukraine would happen. And by the same token, if you look at the uh, expansionism of the Chinese government at this moment, the Chinese were suppressing Xinjiang residents, suppressing the Tibetans. And there was a suppression of uh, Hong Kong people by uh, imposing the national security law over Hong Kong and have taken away every bit of the freedom uh, from the Hong Kong people. And these are things that we watched and we weren't able to stop. And now the Chinese are going after Taiwan. The Chinese are going after the South China Sea. The Chinese are also going after the East China Sea. So we need to be able to stop China in order to prevent China from thinking about launching a war against one of its neighbors. And if Taiwan is not able to keep the way it is, uh, or uh, keep its uh, freedom and democracy, being uh, engulfed in the Chinese expansionism, I don't think that the the rest of the Indo-Pacific is going to be safe. And therefore, the lesson that we have learned from the failure of deterring Russia from going after Ukraine it's also something that we need to be very sober about. We mm-hmm. need to be able to deter the Chinese from uh, further expansion, especially going after Taiwan with military force. If we are not able to stop China from taking over Taiwan, I would say Japan and the Philippines will be the next target of China. Mm.
0: So... You're the first Taiwanese foreign minister to meet openly with U.S. officials in Washington, D.C. in a long, long time, since 1979, I believe. And Beijing has made it clear it doesn't like contact between Taipei and Washington. And in fact, there was quite a backlash when Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Do you think public diplomacy with the United States helps your cause or does it hurt it?
1: There are several angles to look into this issue. Uh, If you look at the Taiwanese uh, people's uh, aspirations uh, to be uh, playing more roles in the international community, to be able to take part in international organizations, uh, or to be able to recognize by more members of the international community, uh, good friends coming to Taiwan and visit us is always good. Uh, If you look at uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, it's uh, highly welcomed by the Taiwanese people. Uh, That makes the Taiwanese people feel that we are not alone in dealing with uh, coercion uh, imposed by China. And this is very important to the morale of the Taiwanese people. By the same token, when President Tsai met with a Speaker uh, McCarthy in the L.A., it was also highly welcomed by the Taiwanese people. And other than American officials or elected officials coming to Taiwan to visit us and to show us support, there are also other countries, uh, namely from uh, Europe, to visit Taiwan, and they come to Taiwan to show support to the Taiwanese people, and they speak out publicly uh, in support of Taiwan. And all these are making Taiwanese people feel that we are not alone. We have a lot of good friends out there supporting us. And it is very important for Taiwan uh, to have the strength to deal with the Chinese coercion. But at the same time, we also need to be very skillful uh, in the handling this kind of case, uh, for example, after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in the last August, the Chinese launched a large-scale military exercises around Taiwan. And that is something that we have to bear in mind, that the Chinese are capable of threatening Taiwan. And therefore, we need to be able to balance the uh, benefits uh, of the visits of the senior officials coming from other countries on the one hand, and to be able to Uh, be militarily prepared, on the other hand. But I think one thing is very important. Taiwan is being isolated by China internationally, and what we would need is international support. And on the other hand, the Chinese also understand that if they want to coerce Taiwan or threaten Taiwan militarily, one thing they don't want to see is Taiwan's international support. So on this note, we should continue to fight for our international friendship. And any kind of support for Taiwan should be welcomed. And I think for the international community, we should not be dictated by China on how you show support to Taiwan. And to the Taiwanese people, we are not going to be dictated by China of what kind of friends we should have.
0: Mm. You know, what you're describing is a balancing act. um, And there's, many aspects of this balancing act. The United States has just approved, I believe, the first ever U.S. military transfer to Taiwan under a program that's usually reserved for assistance to sovereign independent states. China has called this a violation of the One China policy. The U.S. says there's no change in its policy. And you're stuck in the middle. How do you view this transfer of weapons?
1: Well, if you look at the reality on the ground uh, in this part of the world, Uh, It is that China is threatening Taiwan militarily, and there's a Taiwan Relations Act that requires the U.S. government to continue to provide Taiwan with defensive articles so that Taiwan is capable of self-defense. And this is exactly what's happening. China is being threatened in Taiwan, and it's threatening Taiwan ever more. Just look at the news these few days. There are more uh, air force incursions uh, across the median line of the Taiwan Strait, which has been there to safeguard the status quo and peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait for decades. But the Chinese uh, Chinese seem to be trying to wreck the status quo. And in addition to the Air Force incursions, uh, right now, there's a Chinese aircraft carrier, Shandong, uh, just sailed through the Bashi Channel, and they're conducting military exercises to the east of Taiwan. So all these are very threatening to Taiwan. And China, in essence, is telling the United States that they should not support Taiwan. In essence, the Chinese want Taiwan to be defenseless so that they can use military force against Taiwan rather easily. And that should not have happened. And we are trying to ask the United States to provide us with defensive articles so that we are capable of defending ourselves. And if Taiwan stays weak, And I think that will be a great thing, great thing, because that is uh, inviting uh, the Chinese to have aggression against Taiwan. We need to be strong militarily. And the United States has been providing Taiwan uh, with defensive articles and also help us, uh, the training of our troops to be able to use those uh, uh, defensive articles. And that is being uh, highly appreciated by the Taiwanese people. And because of this we are able to deter the Chinese from launching a war against Taiwan.
0: So in my mind, there's little doubt um, that Taiwan needs to be strong. Uh, That's fair. But when you look at the relations between the United States and China, so we mentioned Speaker Pelosi's visit, and right after that, there was a real deterioration in relations between the United States and China. There's another aspect to this. Every time... President Joe Biden, um, when he's speaking in public, he often says that the United States will come to Taiwan's defense if China attacks it. This, of course, diverges a little bit from uh, the White House's stated One China policy. And then what happens when President Biden says these things, they call them gaffes, and the White House tries to correct the record and says, no, 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 we stand by the One China policy. But what happens in the end is U.S.-China relations take a step back each of those times. Sitting in Taiwan, how do you see the balancing act that Washington has to perform as it tries to support Taiwan on the one hand, but it's seeing a relationship with China which is
1: spiraling downwards? I appreciate it very much for raising this issue. If you look at the situation Taiwan is in. on the one hand, China has been threatening Taiwan. There's no doubt about it. And on the other hand, the United States is providing all kinds of support for Taiwan, and there's no also no doubt about it. So under these kinds of circumstances, the interaction in between the United States and China is always something that uh, we have been watching uh, very closely. But the relations between uh, the United States and China has been deteriorating uh, for years, not just you know, uh, in the past few years, or after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and, and uh, not just at,
0: for, not not just because of Taiwan. To be clear, it's deteriorating for many that's right. reasons.
1: That's right. For trade, for suppression of human rights, uh, or for the expansion of uh, the uh, Chinese authoritarianism in this part of the world or the Chinese attempt to destroy the free and open Indo-Pacific. So all these are the reasons contributing to the deteriorating relations between the United States and China. And therefore, uh, when we watch the uh, event or the relations between the United States and China evolving, we are always in high alert to make sure that Taiwan's position remains strong and our relations with the United States remain very robust. And uh, I would like to tell you that uh, despite the relations uh, in between uh, the United States and China suffering from uh, ups and downs, the relations between Taiwan and the United States have always been very strong. If you look, at that, look back to the, uh, President Trump's era, Uh, Our relations with the United States at the time was uh, increasing tremendously uh, during that period of time uh, in security arena, in economic affairs, or in other type of relations. That was very strong. And when President Biden came into office, the relations were still very strong, and it was getting stronger. And if you look at the Capitol Hill, uh, we are supported by both sides of the aisle. Uh, We have visiting congressmen, And uh, very often they will tell us that uh, the congressmen from uh, the two sides of the aisle disagree with uh, each other virtually on everything except on Taiwan issue. And they look at the Taiwan issue as the uniting issue. So we are very happy to be able to work very closely with the United States, with the administration, with the Congress, with both sides of the party. And I think this kind of direction is not going to change And the current situation in between the United States and China is that, uh, yes, uh, there's a deterioration of the relations. But I think if there's going to be a war, Taiwan will be the first to suffer. And we are very glad to see that the administration has been uh, taking up all kinds of measures, on the one hand, to deter the Chinese from launching a war, and on the other hand, to try to manage the situation to prevent Uh, the Chinese from thinking that the war is the only result that they can go for. So this Mm -hmm. is a situation in the uh, relations between uh, the United States and China. And I think so far, we are quite happy with the way things are going, especially in the support of the United States for Taiwan.
0: So you said that there is bipartisan consensus in Washington about supporting Taiwan. I agree with you largely, but there are some exceptions. And I'm going to name one of them. So there's a presidential candidate, um, Vivek Ramaswamy. He made headlines here in the United States during uh, a presidential debate when he said that the US should defend Taiwan vigorously until it achieves what he calls semiconductor independence. And then it should resume a position of strategic ambiguity. So, in other words, he was essentially saying, you know, America should protect Taiwan until 2028 when America has enough semiconductors and then it can just let go. So there's an emerging strand of foreign policy thinkers, especially in the Republican party. How much does that worry you when you hear proposals like that? What is the reaction in Taipei?
1: Uh, the reaction from Taipei is that uh, this is such a unique voice and it's not in line with the majority voice or in the mainstream uh, view on the US-Taiwan uh, relations or on how the U.S. should continue to support Taiwan to be able to deal with the Chinese military coercion. So that kind of a very unique voice uh, is being read here in Taiwan, Uh, but there's no real reaction to that because that is too unique uh, uh, in essence. But I think the uh, semiconductor industry That is something that uh, we have been uh, discussing here in Taiwan, and that is also one element that we have been working very closely with the United States. There's a high concentration of uh, semiconductor chips uh, here in Taiwan. Uh, For instance, for the highest end of semiconductor chips, about 92% are actually produced here in Taiwan. So if you look at uh, the supply chain or the supply of uh, semiconductor chips uh, in the whole supply chain, Uh, If there's going to be a war in uh, Taiwan, uh, I think the interruption of the supply chain is going to have a very serious impact on the international economy. And the war in Ukraine has already taught us that that war is not just limited to uh, Ukraine. That also has an impact on the global energy supply, food supply and inflation and et cetera. And if there's going to be a war uh, involving Taiwan, uh, the kinds of impact as many would indicate, that it will be more serious than the war in Ukraine. And therefore, there's a large uh, international consensus right now that the safety or security or uh, peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait is uh, very important to the international or global prosperity and security. And because of that, I think there's a growing international awareness that uh, they should try to keep the status quo and keep the peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait. But of Mm -hmm. course, uh, we understand that uh, the uh, resilience of the supply chain is also very important. And the United States is thinking about building its own semiconductor supply chains in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And we think that is uh, something that Taiwan can work together with the United States. And uh, therefore, we try to work together with the Arizona government and also with the Biden administration to set up the uh, semiconductor production.
0: If I may, Minister Wu, I just want to push you a little bit on that because a lot of analysts uh, describe what you're talking about as a so-called silicon shield. So, you know, Taiwan is extremely important to the global economy because of all of the things you were saying, because of the semiconductors it produces. But the United States and China and India and several other countries are now ramping up their own semiconductor industries at home. And part of their hope in doing so is to become self-sufficient and reducing dependence on your country. So on the one hand, you are saying you would like to partner, you know, in Arizona, for example. But doesn't all of that threaten the silicon shield uh, as
1: such? Well appreciate it very much for raising this concept of silicon uh, silicon shield. Uh, actually, we are not thinking that way. Uh, we are thinking that uh, Taiwan's ability to produce semiconductor chips or Taiwan's strength in the uh, international supply chain is something that we should share with the international community. We want to be able to contribute to the international prosperity from our strengths rather than using it, Uh, to go against China. And on the other hand, if China wants to attack Taiwan, that would not be a factor, a serious factor for China to consider. If they want to attack Taiwan, they would attack Taiwan anyway. So uh, what we would want to do is to be able to share this uh, uh, important factor with the international community. So in the process of discussing with the United States, it's not only the TSMC going to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, there will be also upstream uh, like uh, material supply or machinery and the downstream uh, testing and packaging companies and also application companies that will be going together with the TSMC to Phoenix, Arizona. So there can be a supply chain in that area And in order for us to be able to do that, I think uh, the avoidance of double taxation uh, is very important. And I think the administration and also the Congress are uh, discussing this issue. And it is the same in our cooperation with Japan. Uh, The TSMC is also making investment in Kumamoto uh, in in Japan. And uh, that is also supposed to help the Japanese to set up its own supply chain over there. But no matter what, uh, we are very confident in our own supply chain. You know, It took us more than 40 years to come to where we are right now. And there has to be uh, abundant supply of engineers and very well-disciplined engineers. And there will also be uh, associated industries coming together. And there will also be the government investment and uh, a lot of emphasis in this area for decades. And all these are not to be replaced by any other country. I think it's just too difficult for any other country to replicate what we are right now, Uh, even though there are other countries that are trying to produce, but they are producing for their own specific needs. You know, for example, uh, Germany or Japan are thinking about automobile industry, but not as Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is uh, so comprehensive. And the highest end is always uh, remains in Taiwan. So if other countries, they want to set up labs, they want to set up their own productions, yes, we will be very happy to uh, work together with them, whether it's India or Germany or Japan or the United States. But at the same time, we are very confident of our uh, semiconductor industry here.
0: And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Minister Wu, we often uh, welcome our subscribers to send in their questions as well. For these FP Live discussions, and we've gotten many from around the world, I want to take one of them. Christopher Gagliardi wants to ask you what Taipei is looking for in terms of security guarantees, more arms or drills from the United States. Is the U.S. doing enough for Taiwan?
1: This is a very good question. In addition to the uh, uh, presence of uh, our mission in Washington, the U.S. also has a large presence here in Taiwan, the uh, American Institute in Taiwan. And one of the most important issues that we exchange with each other is the security relations between Taiwan and the United States. And whenever these issues are being discussed in between the two sides, we always try to find a conclusion, what is the best for Taiwan? And the conclusion uh, these days is that uh, asymmetric warfare, is absolutely important for Taiwan. And in order for Taiwan to be able to engage in the asymmetric warfare capabilities, we need to buy arms for that purpose, and we need to be trained for that purpose. And the United States has been uh, working very hard in that regard, and that is highly appreciated. And we hope that this trend can continue. But of course, if you look at the defense need of Taiwan, the uh, asymmetric warfare, uh, preparing for the Chinese assault on Taiwan is absolutely needed. But at the same time, if you look at the Chinese grey zone activities over Taiwan, uh, we also need to be thinking about how we can be better prepared in dealing with the Chinese incursion almost on a daily basis. You know, For example, if the Chinese continue to cross the median line of the Taiwan Strait but is uh, uh, below the threshold of a war, They will continue to zoom in. They will continue to zero in. That will create more threatening scenarios for Taiwan. And that will condense our defense depth and that will shorten our reaction time. And this is something that we will continue to discuss with the United States to see how we can respond to the Chinese gray zone activities. And other than Taiwan itself, I would like to point out that the the South China Sea is also very threatening to all the countries in this region. Uh, you know, the Chinese way of dealing with the Philippines is just uh, one of the examples of the Chinese expansionism. If you look at the whole South China Sea, the Chinese uh, published a new map uh, that had uh, 10 dashed lines uh, covering almost the whole body of water in the South China Sea. And they built tiny little shores and rocks into major military bases. Now they are patrolling uh, the whole South China Sea uh, over the surface or in the air trying to back up their sovereignty claims. Of course, that will put the countries in this region uh, in a situation that they need to confront against China over these territorial claims. So these are all very dangerous situations. If there's going to be a conflict over the South China Sea, I think Taiwan is going to be engulfed. And if Taiwan is engulfed in the war, With China, I think South China Sea is not that far away from us. And it can be said, you know, East China Sea is in similar situations. So what we would need from the United States or from the international community is to continue to pay very close attention to the growing Chinese expansionism and their assertiveness so that we can come up with a joint effort in confronting against the Chinese aggression in this area.
0: You know, here in the United States, everyone is talking about China's economic slowdown. And I'm curious how that looks to you over there. But does it make you more or less worried about potential aggression on the part of Beijing?
1: Uh, That is a very good question. Uh, I think it can go both ways, Uh, or it can go either way. Uh, It's hard to predict Uh, economic slowdown is a very serious matter for the Chinese government to look at right now. Uh, For example, the real estate market, many people describe it as uh, melting down. And the local governments depend a lot on the land properties and the real estate for their local financial uh, incomes. And uh, because of the real estate slowdown, it's uh, slowing down a lot of other things. And the foreign investment are not coming as much as before, and the trade figures are not as good as before, and therefore the slowdown has become a serious problem to uh, the degree that the Chinese government would not publish some uh, key indicators, for example, the youth uh, unemployment. The last time we saw the Chinese official statistics is about 21% of the youth unemployment. But the reality is much more serious than that. Uh, according to the Chinese officials, anyone who are able to work for an hour per week will not be counted as unemployed, and therefore, the unemployment situation is much more serious than the uh, previous official statistics and Under these kinds of circumstances, some people worry that uh, you know the Chinese would uh, seek uh, a scapegoat outside to divert the domestic attention or to uh, keep the country together. And under that kind of consideration, Taiwan is so conveniently located right outside China. And therefore, Taiwan might become a scapegoat. And because of that, you know, Taiwan is uh, extra cautious in dealing with China. We don't want the Chinese government to think that they can easily target Taiwan or they can use uh, some of the excuses uh, on Taiwan so that they can launch a war against Taiwan. But on the other hand, if the Chinese economy is slowing down, that will be curbing the Chinese ability in our expansion in their military capabilities and et cetera. But it will take a few years before the Chinese central government's ability is curbed.
0: There's a school of thought that goes that China at some point must invade Taiwan, uh, that it's going to happen and that the best that policymakers can do is kick the can down the road. So delay it, delay it, delay it. And keep delaying it so that it doesn't happen. Um, but let me go back to that first part. Do you think that it is inevitable that China will at least attempt to try and invade Taiwan?
1: I don't think it's inevitable, and I don't see that it's imminent right now. The Chinese have uh, ancient military philosopher Sun Tzu, and uh, his principles are being followed by the Chinese decision makers or the Chinese military And the number one principle of Sun Tzu is to crush the enemy without the actual use of force or the uh, uh, actual use of war. And I think what China has been doing uh, right now is following that principle. They would threaten Taiwan to increase the threat against Taiwan so that they might see that Taiwan crashed or uh, could not stand it anymore. And therefore, yielded to Taiwan to accept the Chinese uh, conditions that Taiwan is part of the PRC and to be ruled by the PRC as a result. But I don't think that is uh, what uh, we should accept. And therefore, what we would need is to be able to defend ourselves so that China understands that if there's a war uh, you know, engulfing Taiwan— The Chinese side will also have to pay a very dear price for it. And I think uh, the preparation on the Taiwan side is to make China think twice before they launch a war against Taiwan. So I don't think the war is imminent and I don't think it's inevitable. And the uh, war or if there's going to be a war, it's going to have serious consequences on the international economy. And as a result, we are seeing more countries now are speaking out on the Taiwan issue. And all these uh, voices coming from the international community cautioning China that peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait is very important, or their opposition to the unilateral change of status quo. All these are going to be very important deterrent forces against the Chinese from thinking about war.
0: So I want to push you on that a little bit. We've sort of touched on the international community several times now in this interview, and sometimes in comparing this situation with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But in the Ukraine situation itself, there are so many countries around the world that are choosing to sit on the fence. And it strikes me that Taiwan's task here is even more difficult because you do not have formal relations with many countries around the world. You are not in the United Nations. And so seeking international support, gaining international support, especially in the global south, will be extremely challenging. So how do you cross that bridge?
1: It's not easy indeed. What we have been trying to do uh, is to strengthen our relations with uh, key like-minded partners. And what we try to do is to make sure that the key partners of ours, democratic partners of ours, are aware of the situation, aware of the Chinese expansionism, and aware of the danger uh, that might impact upon the rest of the world. And as a result of our hard effort, there are more countries that are speaking out on the Taiwan issue. You know, the United States, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, even Czech Republic, Lithuania, Japan, uh, Australia, and even the Koreans and the Philippines, nowadays, they are speaking about um, the importance of peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait, and they oppose unilateral change of status quo. Well. And all these are very strong voice. And these are the countries that do not have uh, formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but they are willing to speak out for Taiwan. And other than uh, their verbal statements, uh, many of these countries are also taking up concrete actions. For example, the countries that I mentioned have uh, uh, their uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, and uh, their Indo-Pacific strategy is to have more connections with the Indo-Pacific area. And one of their primary targets is to strengthen their relations with Taiwan. And other than strengthening relations with the countries in the Indo-Pacific, they are also conducting freedom of navigation operations in this region. Uh, I would uh, particularly like to point out that uh, the French uh, parliament just uh, passed its military seven-year military preparation act. And that was signed into law by President Macron. And it specifies that the French military is required to conduct freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait. And other than that, you know, just a couple of days ago, we saw the uh, joint freedom of navigation operations by the American and Canadian naval forces along the Taiwan Strait. And these are very strong indications that the, all these countries that are mentioned are very interested in the peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait. And they are willing to take up concrete actions to show that uh, they really care and they want to deter the Chinese from thinking about war.
0: Minister Wu, I began this interview by talking about last week's G20. So I want to end by looking ahead to the United Nations General Assembly. Taiwan, of course, is not a member state. You have called on the UN to admit Taiwan as a member. How could that actually happen? Do you see that as feasible?
1: It is still very hard and we have to recognize that and it's just it's not just the united nations it's also other major international organizations uh, the chinese have been uh, in you know very serious preparations to infiltrate into the secretariat of the major international organizations and they try to condition all this uh, secretariat of uh, major international organizations asking them to accept the notion that taiwan is part of the prc so that taiwan can play no role uh, in these international organizations. But I think there's a hope. The hope is that major countries in the world now understand that China is threatening Taiwan, and the UN is the major international organizations to ensure peaceful outcome of international dispute. And if China continue to uh, violate the uh, UN charter, uh, number one tenant, of a peaceful settlement of international dispute, I think the international community will think about uh, the feasibility of Taiwan's participation in the United Nations and the uh, associated international organizations. War is something that we don't want to see. And if we want to ensure peace over the Taiwan Strait, for Taiwan to be able to deliberate in the UN is one of the major way to go. And I think there's a growing attention from the international community that there has to be peace in between Taiwan and China. And the best forum to discuss this issue will be the United Nations. So keeping Taiwan out of the United Nations is immoral, is unjust, and it's something that we have to uh, make change to.
0: Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, thank you, Ravi, for this interview.
0: And that was Joseph Wu, the Foreign Minister of Taiwan. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. The United Nations General Assembly is underway and we will be speaking with the head of USAID. She's also a former US ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.
2: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
2: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works, and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
0: You wanna make it tasteful, you wanna make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
2: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day to day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.